Please turn with me in your Bible first to Luke chapter 1. For those who have been here the last few weeks, we have been working through Paul's uh, wonderful letter to the Philippians. We finished that last Sunday. Scott finished it for us, and uh, I recommend going back and listening if you were not here last Sunday. But we finished that up, and now we are moving on to the book of Acts. And as you probably know, Acts is not part one. It is part two of a two-book series essentially written by Luke himself, the beloved physician. And uh, I want to spend a portion of today really in, in Luke, his introduction, because his introduction applies to both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. It's both, both books are addressed to the same individual, a man named Theophilus, and so we will, we will spend some time looking at that. But I want to spend a little time even kind of setting this up before we get into Luke's Gospel. So today we are dealing with the issue of doubt and certainty concerning what Scripture teaches about Jesus. Doubt and certainty. Are we certain that what Scripture teaches about the Lord Jesus is true, historically, factually, reliable, and true? Uh, for, for most of you, I'm, I'm assuming most of us in the room are Christians. If you're not a Christian, you are welcome here. We're glad you're here, and we really hope you, you even listen in as we discuss these matters today. But if you're a believer, my guess is there are times uh, where maybe at different points in your life it's been different, but there are times where almost like gnats flying around your, your face, doubts will creep into your mind. It might be during a certain period of your life where you're going through trials or difficulty, and almost like a gnat flying around your face, there's this sort of doubt, like wondering, is there a good God sovereign over what I'm going through? Why would I be put through this? Why would God do this? Or maybe it's about the reliability of the text of Scripture itself. Well, I thought Luke really begins emphasizing these issues, and so I wanted to kind of look at this in two big steps. The first is this. These are two big questions we have to ask about Scripture. Number one, is what we are reading what they wrote? Is what we're reading what they wrote? Number two, is what they wrote what really happened? Is what they wrote what really happened? So I want to start with that first question. For some of you, this I'm sure will be familiar. For others, this may be new. But a big question is, is what we're reading what they wrote? And before I even get into this, I want to recommend a book. It's a very readable-sized book. Uh, it's not hard to grasp. Peter Williams from Tyndale House in Cambridge, uh, he, I really like Peter Williams. He's got some good videos on YouTube, but this book came out relatively recently. It is called, Can We Trust the Gospels? by Peter J. Williams. You can get it on Amazon for probably 13, 14 bucks. I do recommend it. It's less than 200 pages. You should always get a hallelujah when there's less than 200 pages, and uh, this is a book you really can read and understand, and he gives some pretty fascinating, some of these relatively new arguments for the reliability particularly of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He also includes Acts in parts of the argument, but it is a fascinating approach. Some of the things I'll be mentioning in part come from him and from others as well. So, let's just, uh, let's discuss this for a moment. Um, Normally, I do this as a trick question in a, in a classroom setting, but I'm just going to spoil it right away. Uh, there, there's no suspense, okay? I, I, love, I love doing about five minutes of getting students to guess, and they're going, oh, here, here, and then they finally realize it's a trick question, and then they're like, how dare you? So, um, 
usually what I say is, do you guys know where the original copy of John is stored today? Do you know what museum or in what country of the world? And people are like, Jerusalem, London, Paris, L.A. I'm like, probably not L.A. Uh, I don't know. So, <laughs> they're guessing all these different places, and I eventually say, spoiler alert, we don't have the original copy of John. And then, the, if I, especially when I'm teaching 10th graders, which I don't this year, but in previous years, <laughs> the, kind of the air goes out of the room. Huh? What about Matthew? Where is that? We don't have the original copy of Matthew. Romans, we don't have the original copy of Romans, and on you go. We don't have the original copy of a single book of the Bible. Now, usually that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. When I first discovered this fact, it made me quite curious and uncomfortable at the same time. I thought, okay, how do I know that what I'm reading is what they wrote? Do you see my question? How do I know that this is reliable? And so today, I, my goal today is just to kind of pour on you a lot of different things. So we're going to move quickly, a lot of information. Every Sunday will not be quite like this. It's an introduction Sunday. But I hope, I hope you leave today with a sense of the certainty and the reliability of God's Word. I hope you just leave saying, I can trust, I can stake my life now and forever on what God's Word says to me. But we've got to deal with some hard questions. We don't have any of the original copies of any book of the Bible, and that can cause real doubt, insecurity. All we have is what? We have you can, the cover of this book is a fragment of a handwritten copy of the Gospels. All we have are copies of copies of handwritten manuscripts. And as you know about handwritten copies of anything, we still write some things by hand, right, in this world. Most things are, you know, you just have it there in your computer. Uh, but handwritten copies, we make mistakes. We copy notes down from the, from, you know, if, the, if your teacher is doing a, a slideshow, we write down information incorrectly. So how do we deal with the fact that we have handwritten copies? Well, I want to show you a slide here, and you won't be able to see this in, in, in really super uh, strong clarity, but what I, what, I, what I want to show you is this. When you compare the New Testament, so you can, I, I know you can't read that, but I'll tell you what it says, okay? <laughs> You're like, I would need a uh, telescope to see that. All you need to see is the yellow. Can you see the yellow dots? That's the important part of this, okay? So, th this right here gives you a, a really good sense of what we're dealing with. So, when it comes to ancient works, can I tell you something? We have almost no original copies of what? Anything. Do we still study ancient history? Yes, because we still can get reliable, we can go back and get close to the original and reconstruct what was the original. So, some of these things, again, you will already know, but I want to point these out to give you a sense of assurance. Are Plato's works still important today in college and philosophy classrooms? Yes, they are. Remember Plato, the student of Socrates, much of what we have about Socrates comes from Plato. We don't actually have Socrates' writings. And so Plato, this incredibly influential figure in philosophy to this day, we, we read him. People sometimes have to memorize large sections. I don't envy that part. And then you have to say it back or write it down. Plato, uh, we don't have any original copies of anything Plato wrote. All we have are, are you ready? Seven copies. Seven copies handwritten manuscripts of what Plato wrote, and therefore most of what we know of Socrates as well, not all, but much of what we know of Socrates. And the earliest copy, in comparison to the original, is distanced by 1,400 years. Now, just let that, for, let's just let that sit on you for a second. Seven copies, the earliest copy, going back to the original, is separated from the original by 1,400 years. And do we act like we have no idea what 
he originally wrote? No. Uh, These copies have differences between them. This doesn't mean we have no access to what was said by Plato and Socrates, with just seven manuscripts almost 1,500 years removed. Uh, Aristotle, he's doing a little bit better. He's got 49 copies. Thank you very much. He wants you to know he's got 49. Uh, 49 copies of Aristotle. Uh, Those, the earliest copy is also 1,400 years removed from the original, and yet we still have a very strong sense of what he said. If you'll see here, the largest circle on the right side of the screen is Homer. You may have guessed that. Homer is doing pretty good. Iliad Odyssey, remember Homer? Uh, You're like, I was trying to forget about him. I studied him a long time ago. But um, Homer, we have 643 copies. Now, that is amazing. That's the best thing you can find in the ancient world, with one exception. And his are about 500 years removed from the original. Now, is that a lot better than 1,400 years? So, we have great access to Homer. 643 copies, going back as far as 500 years from the original, and when you put them together, can you reconstruct with great accuracy what was originally written by Homer? Yes, you you can. Now, you may be wondering what the sun is on the other side of the screen. The sun, blocked out in part by that white chart there, the sun is this. It, It is every handwritten copy of the New Testament we have in every ancient language that we have it in. So, in Greek, the original language, we have about 6,000 copies, about, of the New Testament. Those are fragments and some complete copies. And then you add to it the Latin. We have more than 10,000 copies in Latin. Then you have Syriac and Coptic from Egypt and on and on. When you put them all together, we have 2,400, no, 24,000. Just Okay, remember, Plato's feeling really insecure right now. He's got seven, he's like, okay, like, what about my works? Seven copies of Plato, 1,400 years from the original. In the New Testament, we have 24,000 copies in various languages. So, here's the thing. If someone wants to start changing manuscripts, what do they have to do? They got to change a lot of manuscripts, and they got to change them in a lot of languages, and then they've got to hide what they did and never get caught, and that doesn't sound very likely to me. So, what we have is 24,000 manuscripts. One great scholar on this subject, Daniel Wallace, uh, has said, we should be embarrassed by the riches that we have as Christians because nobody else comes close. Nobody else comes close. Vody Bauckham said, nobody is tearing down the walls in college because they're reading Caesar, Plato, and Aristotle, but they want to tear down the walls because we're reading what? The Bible. Now, do you see the bias going on here? The the, the bias. If seven copies, 1,400 years removed, can be at least pretty much reliable, how much more can 24,000 copies be, and how close do we get to the originals? We have portions of John's gospel, this is debatable, written between 35 and 65 years from the original. Is that better than 1,400 years? So, we have copies of the New Testament within a few centuries in complete full form from different parts of the world, and are there differences? Yes. If you have almost any Bible today, we'll say at the bottom of most pages, footnotes, where it says, some manuscripts say this, some manuscripts say that. What do we do about that? Well, here's the the deal. Do those differences threaten any significant doctrine of the Christian faith? No. The Trinity, the resurrection the divinity of Jesus, the death of Jesus, none of those doctrines, no major doctrine is threatened by these manuscript variations, and we have such good scholarship. I just, I guess I can just say, take my word for it, but you can look into this yourself. 
the New Testament translations that we have today, the, the literal translations that we have in the ESV and the NASB and other type translations are so good we should really be embarrassed by the kind of riches that we enjoy as Christians today. We really can trust that what we are reading now is what they wrote then. Okay, so that, that's big point number one. We could spend a whole day on that, but I want to move on from that to number two. Is what they wrote what really happened? Is what they wrote what really happened? Well, Luke would like to address us on that very topic. So look with me here at Luke's introduction to Luke Acts, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Well, let me introduce you to Dr. Luke. Uh, let me take us back to the time of Philippians. Everybody remember Philippians, so uh, Paul was, remember, in that imprisonment? Well, let me tell you something that was happening while Philippians was being written. There were some other things happening. Before Paul was in Rome, remember chained to the guards that we talked about? Before that, he took a ship uh, voyage up to Rome, and before that voyage, he was imprisoned in Caesarea, which is near Jerusalem, for two years. That's later in Acts. While he was there, there are some famous moments in Acts that occur. We call them the we sections of Acts. Have any of y'all heard of the we sections of Acts? There's a lot of they sections, but then when the, when the narrator says we, what does that mean? Luke was there. He, he was traveling with Paul. And so, fascinatingly, when Paul goes to Philippi, who's there? Luke. Luke would have met Lydia. He was there when the Philippian jailer was converted and his family baptized. He was there when that woman had the demon, the young girl had the demon cast out of her, and it appears that he spent a couple of years in Philippi. When Paul left, he stays behind. And then Paul meets back up with Luke, and he travels to Jerusalem. And when Paul is arrested for those two years in Jerusalem, Luke stays in Jerusalem because he then leaves with Paul at the end of those two years to go to Rome. So what was Luke doing during those two years when Paul was imprisoned near Jerusalem and he was free? And the answer is, well, I think he was doing research for his books why wouldn't you? Imagine you're writing a two-volume book, and you're down the street from, if Mary was still alive, Mary would be in her late 70s. Mary could have been still alive. He could have possibly met with Mary, the mother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus, was definitely alive. He was leader of the church in Jerusalem. He could have spent two years talking to James. Peter would have been around. John Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark, was around. He had lots to do. And Luke was a careful investigator of what was going on, and then he travels again with Paul to Rome. And so, when Paul is writing Philippians, Luke is almost certainly putting the finishing touches on Luke Acts at the very time Paul is writing the book of Philippians. Isn't that fascinating how those two things correspond? Let me tell you something else about Luke. In one of Paul's last letters, 1 Timothy, before his death, he says this, 1 Timothy 5 uh, verse 18, he says, as the Scriptures say, okay, so our ears perk up, we're expecting Him to quote what Testament? Old Testament. That would be normal. And He does. He quotes Deuteronomy, 
He says, the, uh, don't muzzle the ox when it treads the grain. Maybe your favorite verse as well. There it is. Don't muzzle the ox as it treads the grain. And then he says, so he says, as the Scriptures say, and he quotes Old Testament Deuteronomy. And then he says, and, so what's he still quoting? Scripture, the laborer is worthy of his wages. And you say, okay, where is that? Those words, the laborer is worthy of his wages, those exact words, are only found one other place in the entire Bible. Luke chapter 10, verse 7, from the mouth of Jesus. What is Paul calling Scripture before he even dies in the 60s AD? Luke's gospel. Now, do you see? Paul and Luke traveled together. Not only does Luke mention Paul, Paul is the major character along with Peter in the book of Acts, right? Half of Acts, more than half, is about Paul. Not only is Luke traveling with Paul and he talks about Paul, Paul talks about Luke. He calls him his beloved doctor and man, if anyone needed a doctor, it was Paul. Paul Luke's like, what happened? I got the whipping again. I got beaten with rods again, shipwrecked again. I mean, Luke had seen Paul's back. 39 lashes five times. Luke had probably worked on that, trying to help him out in some way. Paul was stoned nearly to death. You might need a doctor around, okay? Luke was traveling with Paul. He was the beloved physician. There is no doubt Luke was trying to help Paul physically as well as they helped each other out spiritually. Luke was also a very intelligent man. Uh, These opening words of Luke are some of the finest Greek in all of the first century that is found anywhere. It it is absolutely high-level Greek that you see written here. And let's look at this for a second. Verse 1 again, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Lots of questions. Number one, who is most excellent Theophilus? Theos, you know the word theos, God, and then uh, the the word philos, the the word for uh, phileo, you know, love. This means either someone loved by God or someone who loves God, uh, Theophilus. Some people think it's a symbolic name for all lovers of God who read the, the letters. But most scholars doubt that because in the ancient world, whenever a letter was attributed to a person, it was always a literal historical person. I think he's talking about a man named Theophilus. And he calls him what? What kind of person? Most excellent Theophilus. Those words are used in Acts to describe um, two people. Wow. Fred, say it. Felix and Festus, the the two procurators who had Pilate's job after Pilate had died, the the two procurators of Judea, they're called most excellent. Very likely, this man was a Gentile, Theophilus, and he was either curious about Christianity or had just become a Christian. We're not sure. But it it seems like he's, he's early on in his faith. Everybody with that? So he's early on in his faith, and Luke wants to encourage him to trust what has been said about Jesus. So, look at verse 4. Why did he write Luke Acts? Look at verse 4 of Luke 1. Why did he write this to most excellent Theophilus? That you may have what? Certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Did Theophilus already have some teaching about Jesus? Yes. Did he already know the basics? Yes. Was he a Christian? Not sure. Maybe, maybe not. But he was certainly on the way to becoming a Christian if he wasn't already. And what does Luke say? I don't want you just to have a little bit of teaching knowledge. 
I want you to have certainty. Now, this word certainty, is I'm probably going to mispronounce this, osphaleia. Okay, that's the Greek word, osphaleia. And this word and words attached to this are used for getting your facts straight, being absolutely sure, having everything nailed down and secure. That's this idea of having osphaleia. Now, John Piper preached on this, and he gave me a good illustration that I will now politely steal from him. So, uh, here's what John Piper said. He said, in our world, a lot of us have knowledge about the Bible the way Theophilus had knowledge before these letters were given to him. He had some teaching, he had some head knowledge. We're not sure how deep this was, but he did not have what? He didn't have certainty. Do you see? He had some knowledge, but he did not have certainty. That's why Luke wrote these to him, to give him certainty. And John Piper said, for many Christians today, our knowledge of doctrine and Scripture is more like clouds than like mountains. Here's the, here's the idea. So, yeah, we, we read a little article or we've read a little bit of the Bible, and so we kind of have this idea, okay, I think the Bible kind of says this or that. We kind of have these clouds, these big ideas in our head. And what can blow a cloud away? One good gust of wind, and the cloud is replaced by something else. So, in our culture today, you see Christians on all kinds of issues Hearing teaching from the secular worldview that opposes the clear teaching of the Bible, I mean, just, I know I mention these a lot, but gender and sexuality is frankly deeply confused and harmful and wrong in so many ways in our culture. And the Bible's teaching is so healthy and right and pure and true, and yet so many Christians are waffling between what Scripture says and what the culture is saying so loudly, and we're saying, I've had some teaching, I have some knowledge, but I'm not sure, I'm not certain. And we waffle, and one gust of secular wind could blow one thought out of our mind and replace it with something unbiblical. Do you remember in Ephesians, Paul describes spiritual immaturity as being blown about by the wind and carried about by every wave of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemings. Think about that. What you think about God and Scripture matters more than anything else in the world. We treat doctrine as a joke. We we make jokes about doctrine. Oh, come on, you know, don't get on to your doctrine. What we believe about God in the Bible is essential to living the Christian life. You and I cannot faithfully live a life of holiness for Jesus and missionary activity that will be enduring and faithful if we don't have solid teaching and belief and certainty about the person of Jesus and the doctrines of the church and who Christ is and who God is. We must have solid teaching and certainty on these essential things. Now, I admit to you, not every doctrinal dispute is of the same weight and significance, certainly. But we must be thinking Christians who weigh carefully. So Piper said, we want our doctrinal beliefs held with humility. Of course, held with humility. But we want our beliefs about God and Jesus to be like immovable mountains, not like fluffy clouds. We, we want to have it down in our bones who Christ is. What, I mean, just take marriage and sexuality, what those are. From the Garden of Eden moving onward, what is it? Marriage is supposed to reflect Christ and the church. Gender and sexuality, what are these things for? What is that about? And have it to where we say it with love and passion and tears, but with conviction, because we believe the truth of God's Word with certainty. People will think certainty equals arrogance. And I'm telling you, that's not true. Being, 
Being sure of who God is is not arrogance. Being sure Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father is humility to believe, not arrogance. Now, G.K. Chesterton is a man I disagree with on all kinds of things. He was a lot lot of stuff. But sometimes he said some brilliant quotes. And and G.K. Chesterton said, I think it was G.K. Chesterton, he said, we have today, modern man has placed humility on the wrong organ. We were meant to place humility on the organ of ambition, you know, advancing my name. We're supposed to put humility on that. And instead, we've lifted humility off of ambition, and we've placed it on truth. We actually think arrogance is being sure you know what's true about God, and we think that humility is pursuing your ambitions and your heart. Think about that. We have reversed the definitions. Humility is saying, whatever my heart is longing for, like Jerry just talked to us about, what my heart longs for may be deceptive and evil and wrong. I shouldn't believe and follow my inward desires, although everybody today tells you that the hero in every story is the one who, against traditional convention or their parents' belief, follows and is true to themselves, no matter what the cost. That's the hero today. When biblically, that is actually a form of arrogance. I'm believing my heart against God's Word. That's arrogance. Humility instead should be, no matter what my heart is telling me at this moment, no matter what my passions are after, I need to submit them to the truth of what God has said. That's humility. To say, Jesus rose from the dead, and He will forgive anyone who trusts Him, and to be sure of it is humility. It is not arrogance. Sure, we can probably say those things in an arrogant way, but to be convinced and to be certain is a goal of Christianity, not a vice. Do you follow that? It's a goal to to, to achieve this certainty. So we don't want clouds. We want humble, joy-bringing, immovable mountains of doctrinal truth from God's Word. And and Luke's going to give us some reasons to trust what he's saying. Luke admits he's not an eyewitness to much of the gospel of Luke. He says he got this from eyewitnesses in verse 2. He's not an eyewitness to much except Paul's ministry, but he did interview and he was around these kinds of people who were eyewitnesses. But look at verse 3. He tells us five things about what he did to write this book. Verse 3, it seemed good to me also, number one, having followed, number two, all things, number three, closely, number four, for some time past, to number five, write an orderly account for you. So, I want to just quickly walk through those five things. That word followed may not sound very impressive. Like, how are you making a point out of the word followed? Well, Luke is saying, I'm not making up something out of my own head. I am following eyewitnesses. I'm following the sources. I'm following the authorities on this. I've talked to people who were there. I've interviewed them. I've weighed carefully what was said. I have measured it in the Spirit helping him. I have followed them. I'm not just making this up. I'm following another authority, which includes eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word. Number two, he has not been careless. He has followed what? All things. All things. Luke is not a careless man. He's an intelligent man. He's a physician. He's intelligent. He's one of the best historians of the ancient world, uh, just even by secular standards. And he says, listen, I have followed all things, everything. I've left no stone left unturned. Everywhere I could go, everybody I could interview, every source I could read, I have done it. I have done as much as I can. I've followed all things, number three, closely, carefully. 
He's done it. He, maybe he has you know, a little OCD going on. He said, like, I got to get every detail just right. I got to get this thing exactly perfect. He, he says, I, I followed it carefully and closely all the way. Number four, for some time past, or, or from the beginning is one translation, for some time past. Luke did not sit down one day and say, I've heard some cool stories about Jesus. Let me get out my quill pen and I will write them down. He spent years. We know he did because his traveling with Paul was years long. He spent perhaps more than a decade compiling and crafting these works. And as we study them, we see how carefully they were put together. And then number five, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Orderly does not mean everything is in chronological order. Sometimes he picks a theme and puts the theme, all those themes together at one place, but he is saying it is a logically orderly fashion. It, I don't know about you. So some, when I was younger especially, I would read the Gospels, and sometimes these stories feel kind of random at times. You're like, okay, why this one after that one, and why this parable after that one? Luke is saying this is not a random cut and paste job. I didn't just get sources and put them together haphazardly. I am doing this with a logical, progressive order. It is not an accident. It has purpose to it. He also says many have done this. No question. I mean, it seems very likely he's relying on Mark, which very many scholars think Mark was written before Luke. Matthew may also have been written before Luke. So those are at least some of his sources as he begins to write this book. Okay, turn with me now to the book of Acts, a couple of books to your right. Book of Acts, chapter 1. While you are turning there, I just got to tell you this, a lot of people have mentioned these stories in the past. John Stott does in his commentary as well. I just, I just have to mention these. Don't, don't fall asleep on this story. This is good. Um, so, there were a couple of uh, as far as I can tell, these were non-Christian uh, archaeologists, famous uh, over a hundred years ago. Uh, one uh, is a man named William Ramsey, and this is a pretty well-known story at this point, I think, but he said he was going to investigate Luke and Acts against archaeology. He was going to do a thorough study of Luke Acts, and he was already said he was biased that Luke was an unreliable, you know, spiritualizing, mythological type writer, just like, a, you know, a, a random thing. So, he says, I was expecting to find Luke to be inaccurate over and over again. And these are his actual, this is from 1895. These are his actual words from William Ramsey. He says that he began his investigation of Luke and Acts without any prejudice in favor of the conclusion which he reached. And he said, on the contrary, he had a mind that was unfavorable to it. You see, he was against the reliability. Then he says this, but after his careful study, he was able to give reasons, quote, for placing the author of Acts among the historians of first rank from the ancient times. Another story, a man named A.N. Sherwin White said, he boils it down to this, same kind of story. He says, for Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its history, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. And I could read you much more long quotes that we would all sleep through. But I will tell you, even non-Christian archaeologists have said, Luke, I don't think he's that good of a historian. They go do the research, and what do they find? And just hang with me here. Luke wrote, he mentions, uh, just give you the, the words here, he mentions 34 countries, 54 cities, nine islands without error. You, you try that without Google, okay? 
54, I mean, 32 countries, 54 cities, nine islands, no errors. He understands traveling times. He knows that you spend five nights here, you wait till the winter's over here, you know the shipwreck is more likely to happen here. He knows you go down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he knows it takes this long to get from here to there. He understands over 100 place names and over 100 people's names. He's naming governors, he's naming Caesars, he's naming times of famine, he's naming all kinds of stuff. When did the Caesar kick the people out of Rome? He mentions that and what happens. He knows about the death of Herod Agrippa and how he died. We'll get to all that later. When you compare it with non-Christian first century historians, guess what? They agree, they agree, they agree. And there's only about one or two spots where Luke seems to disagree with the non-Christian historians, and to which I would say we'll talk about that when we get there. It's not so bad. When you look at it, it actually makes a lot of sense what Luke is saying. So Luke is an unbelievably careful and reliable historian. We can trust what he wrote. Now let's come to second volume here, uh, the book of Acts chapter 1. I'm just going to read the first three verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, what I find interesting here is He says, listen, for 40 days, Jesus kept appearing to numerous people, in one case, 500 people, Paul tells us, showing the wounds on His hands and feet and side, and eating food, which Jesus reminds them, ghosts don't do this, spirits don't eat food, well, watch this, and and Jesus is proving over and over. Jesus appears where? Well, He appears on the shore in John in the morning, cooking breakfast. It's one of my favorite things. What does Jesus do after resurrection? He cooks them breakfast. I'm like, I will, I will dibs on that meal right there. That sounds fantastic. Jesus is walking on the shore with the disciples. He appears in the upper room at numerous different times on numerous different days with numerous different collections of eyewitnesses. He appears to the women outside the tomb. Uh, he appears to Mary Magdalene. He appears to Peter. He appears to James, the brother of Jesus. You, you ever wonder how James became a Christian? <laughs> The brothers of Jesus rejected his ministry all the way through his crucifixion. Suddenly, a month later, James is like, let's go for Jesus. What happened to James? 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared also to James. That's an awkward conversation right there. The younger brother rejecting the old, come on, just, the younger brother's going, yeah, I don't believe you, don't believe you, don't believe you, you're crazy, you're not the Messiah. Oh, you're alive from the dead. Okay, I think I'm going to leave the church in Jerusalem until they kill me for it. Let's go. And James is ready to go. So, what you have is all kinds of people, men and women, people of various different backgrounds, and he's appearing to them and he's proving to them over and over and over again that he is alive from the dead with many proofs. Now, here's something significant to think about. If this was all made up, you know what you do? I should say, you know what you don't do? You don't write these accounts when the eyewitnesses are still alive, because if you lie about people while they're still alive and you publish it, you know what happens? People go, ah, yeah, we were in the upper room. There was no appearance of Jesus. That's completely fabricated. So if you're going to make up lies, you wait about 100 years after the events. Why do you wait 100 years? Everybody has died. And then you fabricate what you're going to say. And yet, 
every single New Testament book is written easily before 100 A.D. The vast majority of the New Testament, I believe, is written before 70 A.D. and the fall of Jerusalem. How far is 70 from the death of Jesus? 40 years. Is that a generation? Are the eyewitnesses still alive? Yes. If Luke was lying, he could not have written this when he wrote it. Paul could not have written what he wrote when he wrote it. He couldn't have said, trust me, you can interview these people because I have too. Go ask them. Take a trip to Jerusalem. See what you find out. No, this had to be what the disciples and the women and the followers of Jesus and the apostles, this is what they believed. You say, how do you really know? Well, you, you know how you really know? Is when people start getting killed and they don't change their testimony. Um, Charles... Colson was involved in the Watergate scandal. You remember this? Charles Colson, famous Christian. He was not a Christian at the time. And he said he had about the same number of people. It was about like you know, a handful of people, 12 or so people were involved in this Watergate cover-up. And he said, you know how long? These are like smart, well-to-do, upper-class Washington, D.C. people. Smart people. And they're, they're involved in a cover-up and a lie. He said, how long did it take the 12 or 15 of us before somebody started telling what really happened, and the lie got out. He said it took, a couple of, it took a couple of weeks. Things started coming out. He said a handful of smart people in D.C. could not cover their own lie to protect themselves. For more than a few weeks, it came out. And in this case, you understand, in that case, telling the truth gets you in trouble, right? With the disciples, what happens? They have every reason to not say Jesus rose from the dead. And what do they do? They say it. Stephen is martyred for his faith in Acts 7. A few chapters later, James, the apostle, is martyred. His head is removed by Herod by this, with the sword. And what happens? Do they all change their story? Nobody changes their story. Now, either at that point, you have something absolutely unexplainable, or you have the truth. Why is it all these people went to their deaths joyfully saying that they met the risen Jesus unless they met the risen Jesus. See, when you get together to make up a lie, the lie typically, think about this, the lie typically is supposed to benefit you in the short run, right? It's supposed to help you out. That's why you lie. You lie to get money. You lie to get a better grade. You lie to get this or that. You lie to get convenience. You lie. You manipulate the truth to get something good for you in the short run, you think. This lie about Jesus' resurrection gets all of them beaten and killed. That is not the reason why people lie. Let me just add another little side comment here. Let's say that they are lying. Peter says, let me contribute a lie. I want the Messiah to call me Satan at some point in this story so I can look better. Think about those words. <laughs> well, let's, let's invent a part where the Lord calls me Satan. Great idea, Peter. That'll sound, make you sound a lot more credible. We'll put that in the gospel. Okay, how about this? Let's make ourselves look like bumbling idiots the entire time through all the four gospels. Let's make it seem like we can't figure out anything. Even when Jesus is about to die on the cross, let's have ourselves, let's make up a lie that we're arguing about who's the greatest right before Jesus dies. Brilliant. John, that's a great idea. Well, I mean, come on. The, the idea that this was fabricated makes them look like idiots, which no one lies to make themselves look stupid. I mean, do you lie to make yourself look less intelligent? <laughs> Just, what more? They lie to make themselves look less intelligent, and then their lie gets them brutally killed over a period of decades through stoning, beheading, beating, and imprisonment. At, at this point, I just have to say, 
What we have now is what they wrote then. We have way better manuscripts. And what they wrote got them killed, and what they wrote said Jesus is alive. You know what I'm going to go with here? It's not a blind leap in the dark. He wants you to have certainty. Jesus really died on the cross for sinners. In our place, condemned, He stood. He was buried in a borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, which all Gospels agree on. There it is. On Sunday, resurrection morning, the tomb was empty when the women as eyewitnesses went in and saw. Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene, then to the women, then to Peter, then to others, then over 40 days. And then, I just have time to to read it. We'll come back to these verses next uh, week, Lord willing. Look at verses 9 to 11. At the end of those 40 days, when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He, Jesus, was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. Five times in those verses, their seeing this happen is mentioned. Five times. It mentions them seeing Jesus ascend into heaven. So, as we come to the Lord's table, here's why we need to think about these things. This is not a simple religious belief that we do to make ourselves feel a certain way. We partake in the Lord's table because we believe in an historic, genuine event that lies behind these words, that Jesus really lived a sinless life, died and rose, and that we, by faith in Him and repentance, can receive the forgiveness of Jesus and have a right standing with God by grace through faith alone. If you're not a believer today, uh, we, we, would, we would ask you to refrain from partaking in these elements. There's nothing magical or mystical here about this. What you need as an unbeliever is, is not these elements, but what they represent. They represent Jesus' body and His blood poured out for sinners. And if you're not a believer, we would invite you, Jesus would invite you to turn from sin and to trust in Him right now in this moment. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, and you're not walking in a state of unrepentant sin or out of fellowship with another believer, then we would ask you to come forward as I sit down in just a moment and partake of these elements. You could go back to your seat and partake of them when you wish praying on through this whole process of repenting and also rejoicing in what Christ has done for us in the gospel. So, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we think about Your Word, we read Your Word because we believe Your Word is true. And we do not believe that off of blind, gullible faith. There is no explanation for the explosive growth of the church, starting in Jerusalem in the mid-first century and moving out to affect every nation on the earth, unless there was an explosive, transformative event that took place around that year 30 A.D., And we believe with all of our hearts that the resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is that event, and that you had Luke and others carefully document and describe these events under the inspiration of your Spirit and have them passed down reliably to us 
so that we this very day could read, comprehend the truth and worship you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who stand as the inspirer of these words. God, I pray you'd be with us now as we repent of sin and as we refresh our joy in the saving work of the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from 2 Peter chapter 1. The Apostle Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we, made come, when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, let us this week, starting tonight and tomorrow, let us engage with Your Word like we believe it is Your Word. Give us a hunger to meet with You in Scripture. If some of us have sort of spiritually feel like we're taking a vacation of sorts and we haven't been in Your Word pursuing You and praying, Lord, show us what we are missing out on. Show us the feast that is prepared, the banquet table that is laid in front of us in Scripture, and give us an appetite to pursue You through Your sure and certain Word. Lord, we have so many reasons to trust what You have written, and yet so often, out of laziness and neglect, I fail to take advantage of what You have provided us with in Your Word. So God, give us a hunger, and please meet with us in an extraordinary way as we are trying to be, by Your grace, faithful to read Your Word, study it, and allow it to inform how we pray, how we act, and how we treat those around us. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.